0: Interestingly, women are actually better educated than men in Australia. So if we're talking about credentials, um, then women already have them. So we're actually leaving men behind in some respects in terms of the level of attainment.
1: Welcome to series three of the Future Health Podcast, a podcast on the way we work, the work we do, and how technology will influence the future of work in New South Wales health and the healthcare industry. We have an incredible lineup of guests this series, and we look forward to sharing it with you soon. Feel free to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, our guest today is Professor Ray Cooper. She is an Australian professor, researcher, and women's employment specialist. She's a Professor of Gender, Work and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney Business School, and her passion is diversity, inclusion, and female workforce participation and leadership. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her today and her thoughts around the future of work and where women fit into that. So welcome, Ray. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before we kick off with the questions, I was hoping you could do a bit of a self-introduction and tell the our listeners a bit about yourself, what you do.
0: Thanks, Sarisha. Nice to be here in the middle of lockdown. Um, uh, so, I'm Ray Cooper. I'm a professor at the University of Sydney. As you said, I do research on all aspects of women's working lives um, and across all sorts of different sectors, whether that's very feminized sectors or really male dominated sectors, uh, in different sort of levels of the hierarchy, and also looking at what organizations do um, what the public policy does around work Um, and even sometimes we do some work on what happens in families that help to build or sadly most of the time not to build gender equality um, in paid employment. So I do that as research. Um, As you said, it's my passion to be looking at equality um, and inclusion, particularly around issues relating to gender, but also all of the diversity. Um, that women encompass. Uh, I also teach at the University of Sydney and I teach classes across undergraduate, postgraduate, MBA um, around issues from industrial relations, the future of work, but also looking at things such as inclusive leadership and how we try to lead in organisations with insights about where the labour force and the workplace is headed. So that's me.
1: It's wonderful. And we're we're really grateful to have you here to talk to us. So let's jump straight in. you've talked about the future of work and clearly this is a podcast which is about the future of health and the future of work so let's dive into that um obviously there's a lot of talk you know future of work is kind of the big buzzword at the moment and everyone is all about technology the robots are taking over which they're not but where do where do women's voices fit into that because obviously health from where we're coming from is a very female dominated workforce. Yet at the same time, um, it is about, you know, women in leadership and a whole range of other areas where they may not be represented. So what does the future of work hold for women? And how can, what opportunities are there? And how can we improve and get there?
0: (laughs) What a massive question. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, Well, we've been doing some research actually on the future of work and what Um, that means in terms of gender equality and what it means for women Um, and one of the reasons why our research team was interested to undertake that work is we feel as though the future of work is really being Uh, talked about in the public policy and even in a lot of the academic work as really being highly technologised and roboticised. And there's not very many workers in the future of work if you um, look at the way that the debate plays out. And whilst there's not many workers, uh, we would say there's actually less women workers who are featuring in that debate. So what our team is trying to do at the moment with a big project we're working on called Australian Women's Working Futures is to look at um how the future work plays out for women um where what women themselves want so we've done quite a, a body of work on what young women uh, so 16 to 40 year olds what they say about what they want in their future what they're worried about in their future and how they think um, their careers will unfold um, and and thinking through what we need to do to meet some of those needs for our very highly educated female labor force So that's one thing to keep in mind. In Australia, um, we have one of the best educated prime age female labour forces in the OECD. Um, We fall behind on many other measures in terms of where women sit. Um, But young women, this generation of women coming through into the labour force in early career um, and mid-career at the moment, are very highly educated. They are really motivated around having great careers, but also doing all the other things in life, like having kids and and great family life. Um, And I don't think we're exactly meeting their needs at the moment. So around the future of work, what we would say is we need to actually think about what workers do, what workers want, what workers fear, and we need to actually look at the diversity of the workforce because it's a really different story um, by that workforce group and also quite different across different sectors and industries.
1: Yeah. And and it's an interesting point there because you talk about diversity and you talk about the skilled workforce. So um, maybe we take a step back a little and talk about something that at least I haven't seen that much research into. And let's talk about the unpaid labor that predominantly is done by women, you know, mostly, not, not all women. So With the future of work clearly we talk about jobs that are paid but have have you done or have you come across any research and i'd be i'd love to know your thoughts on what impact does all this future of work planning have on that unpaid labor that has been done predominantly by women and where where does that fit in caring
0: responsibilities and absolutely well even in the current context Sarisha, we're really seeing the impact that unpaid work has on people's capacity to engage in paid employment Um, So we know that so women still do the great majority, actually, they do double of what if they live in a heterosexual couple, um, and they have kids, uh, they do double the unpaid work that um, men in families do. Um, And that, you know, is important in many ways. It's important because it's unequal um and it's important in that it actually puts a bit of a break on what women can do outside of the home um, in terms of being able to pay back on that investment they've made in education for example um i think you're right that we have to try to think about the connections between paid and unpaid work Um, and that means looking at what happens in in homes and families but it also means looking at what the public policy settings are around the workforce and paid employment. So early childhood education, for example, um, the investments that we're making in things such as disability and aged care, um, they're they're really critical to think of as being really connected up with what happens um, in paid employment and what happens in unpaid work at home. Um, So it's a a real ecosystem, I think, um, that we see developing that has a real impact on um, what work is done, who it's done by, whether it's paid it, uh, is really important. But also having trying to have a look at what the levers are that we might have to be able to get people to engage in the paid work that they want to. Um, and I think especially for our team, we're really interested in looking at the ways in which we can have uh, women uh, participating in good jobs. So not necessarily working in highly precaritized, uh, you know, highly flexible, you know, um, short term contract or you know, by our paid employment, but working in in good career-focused jobs. Um, And that, I think, is going to be a big challenge in the future of work. And I I see that as one of the the critical things that we need to actually try try to investigate what we can all do about that.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because, so we're sort of talking about two different things. Um, In the one instance, you've got an element of time that women will participate in unpaid labor, say when they go on maternity leave where they're still working but not necessarily getting paid, and then they step back into careers or pick them up again. If we're talking about future of work advances in technology, the way things are changing. what do you think and I'm, I'd be interested from your kind of university academic point of view, how do you bridge the gap in education where women have you know sacrificed a portion of their working life to do this unpaid labor and then to step back in to the labor market but things have rapidly changed particularly if we're talking future of work where you know people are saying things are going to change rapidly. Um, as time comes. So what do you see as the sort of challenges um, and how do you address them?
0: Well, interestingly, women are actually better educated than men in Australia. So if we're talking about credentials, um, then women already have them. So we're actually leaving men behind in some respects in terms of the level of attainment uh, that they have in terms of um, both vocational education and training, higher education and training. Women outnumber men quite significantly in the bachelor's educated. Uh, labor force. So, uh, you know, someone like me as a educator in universities, I think this is a great thing that, you know, women are, you know, the higher higher education um, is really the pathway into the professions. Um, and I think women have really beaten the doors down to professions. The problem is, That the credentials alone are not what allows us to progress in careers. Um, So, you point to one problem, which is where uh, women shoulder the majority of unpaid work, and it's often work that's lovely work, you know, looking after families and babies and, you know, um, people that we love. But it often means stepping off that track um, in terms of uh, what happens um, in terms of paid employment and career progression. And it seems that we're pretty good at actually giving people a ramp off um when they need to go and take on intensive care responsibilities. so this it's almost like here's the bouquet of flowers you know have a nice maternity leave away you go but it's really hard to actually get back in um often into you know particularly into high quality employment so i'm not actually convinced that it's actually about the credentials to get back in because i actually think that we have a very um very highly trained uh, labour force, particularly at that age where women are having their first child, which is at about 32 at the moment in Australia. That's been a big change. I think it actually is about thinking differently about keeping people engaged uh, when they're um, engaging in caring responsibilities and maybe having a bit of a think about what does a career track look like and doesn't necessarily have to mean long hours full time Um, because it could mean actually if we change our approach to that. Um, and think about um, you know maybe shorter hours or you know whatever arrangements scheduled over uh, over the year um, could actually mean that we can keep um, women with intense care responsibilities really engaged um, which is good for women and it's also good for businesses and organizations in terms of trying to keep that really skilled labor there there are also look there are ways that organizations are trying uh, where they've got pretty good policies around these issues to have stay in touch programs when mums are on maternity leave, um, and to keep keep them engaged. But I think it's a broader theme about signalling that we value um, people who might be taking leave to look after children, for example, in that stage of the career, um, and that and welcoming them back and making it manageable that people can actually engage in you know the the work to which they're trained or the level at which they're trained and do that in a way that's sustainable to also having families or Having all those other uh, responsibilities and things that we do in our lives.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because it, that's that's my um, next question for you, Ray. Which is, we we talk about future of work. It's new ways of working. So what you're really kind of saying there is, we need to change the way we we think about offering employment, or you know ha- how we market coming back to work, not just in healthcare, but just generally, so that it it is adaptable to women's needs, given that they do the majority of, you know, caring responsibilities and so on and so forth. So what what would you say in terms of that flexibility, when you talk about offering flexibility, I know you've given us a few examples, but what are your thoughts around different ways of working that would suit um, and be able to be adaptable to and it's not just women on maternity leave, it's women who have older parents and caring responsibilities. There's, and there's cultural elements around there as well with yeah, certain cultures. Look, it's also
0: dads. Um, it's, a, it's also other family members, you know. Um, so, and I actually think that, um, you know, gender equality and having situations where we're actually making it easier for, um, maybe thinking about it as easier to care, and easier to do the human work that we do um, might be a way to approach it rather than thinking of it necessarily as something for women. We've seen a lot of work um, change just in the last 18 months, haven't we? Um, In terms of one form of flexibility, which is working from home, um, which I know lots of people have done and I know a lot of people in the health sector haven't actually been able to do because, um, you know, many of our healthcare professionals have been right on that front line. Um, trying to keep us safe and alive through the period of COVID. But I think there's some lessons to learn in other areas and maybe um, not just in frontline work, which is that, um, you know, remote working is possible. Um, And I think we're in the field at the moment doing some research in different sectors where perhaps um, some leaders in some of those um, professions and organisations might have said in the past that flexibility, remote working is actually not possible here. Um, I think that the international experiment with um, working from home um, has actually meant that it's now seen as being a lot more possible. And we're seeing some survey evidence actually recently, just this year, in the last couple of months, showing that there is an increasing expectation amongst the workforce. directly as a result of the COVID experience, that they'll have the capacity to access more flexibility, but also the workforce thinks that their employers are much more likely to be offering um, flexibility. So I think employers, you know, including in the healthcare sector, need to be thinking through what that means for their supply of labour. So if your workforce both thinks that they need flexibility, thinks it's possible for you to provide, and also thinks that you're going to provide it, that sort of creates a bit of pressure um, to be thinking through what options um, people want. So work from home uh, or remote working is just one way to look at flexibility. Um, that is enabled a lot by technology and we've come ahead in leaps and bounds um, You know, in the last year or so. Um, I speak as someone who'd never taught online before March last year and I had to basically go online uh, overnight. You know, a lot of us in the professions have have done that. But there's other ways to think through uh, flexibility, which is not just about place of work, but it might be about the types of hours that we're working and the way those hours are sort of put together. Um, So, but I think whichever type of flexibility we're thinking through, there is certainly gonna be a lot more demand um, and a lot more um, pressure, I would say, um, on us as employers to be able to try to meet the needs of employees. However, I'm not necessarily a person who thinks that uh, you know, the Zoom screen and the work from home that's been possible for a lot of workers is necessarily going to create a situation of gender equality. Uh, I think we need to be very clearly trying to design in gender equality. Um, something that I'm a little worried about is if we're assuming that because uh, women, particularly mums of little kids can work at home because of the, you know, the Zoom capability and and whatnot, that um, that'll be good for career progression, or it be good for building equality. <clears throat> I kind of have a bit of suspicion in my mind that actually, if it's only the women who are staying at home and doing that work, and men are more present in the workforce, that that could actually have counterintuitive um You know impacts, and it could actually mean that the people who are present at work are streaming ahead, and the people who are at home are kind of left behind to an extent. So I think we've got to think through the logic of some of these things. Um, And right now is a pretty good time to be thinking through. Okay, when we eventually get out of the COVID situation, what does what does that mean that we want? want to be doing in terms of uh, workforce uh, and what does that mean in terms of the types of flexibilities that are available to us now?
1: Yeah, and and that is an interesting point you raise there because I think it it seems to apply um, generally to people as well where the idea that you kind of get left behind because you're not in the office and seen means you may get, you know, Missed over for a promotion and things like that. So you're absolutely right. There is a danger in forgetting someone because they are at home, and should they be solely responsible for those those caring um, duties, as it were? Yeah,
0: yeah. And we know that we know that per, that per, typically, um, I've done a little bit of research on this, and there there is a there is sort of an assumption, and it's particularly strong in Australia actually that people who are present are people who are performers um and so even this sort of 18 months of experimentation with you know people who are performers for no reason of their own are working from home um that might crack that sort of assumption a little bit but i think it's a pretty strong assumption that many of our leaders and managers have so i think we're going to have to really try to design that out of our, our thinking if we're going to try to make this a more equitable arrangement
1: yeah, I absolutely agree. And you've raised a really interesting point there, which I'd like to um, explore a little bit if, you, if you're if you all comfortable with that, and that is assumptions and bias. Because one of the big things that we talk about in future of work and technology is artificial intelligence, where you've got so much data available, um, but you're not sure who's making the decision around you know policy decisions, which will impact groups that may already be disadvantaged. So I thought we could just unpack that a little bit in terms of, you know, um, women. Historically, women have been passed over um, professionally at times. Um, I won't make a general statement like that. But uh, what are your thoughts around the use of artificial intelligence, particularly in um, HR and human resources there? Mm. Well,
0: it's big debate at the moment, isn't it? I mean, um, I read a great paper the other day. The title of it was "Bias In, Bias Out." You know, um, and that <laughs> is that the, we can't assume that, a, that none of our socio-technical systems or our technologies are uh, bias-proof. Um, and in fact, if you have a good look at the the ways in which um, you know some of these algorithms or um, you know other you know, technological developments are going ahead, um, and look at the workforce that is developing those. Um, it's a pretty blokey context. Um, I'm about to start a research project on, um, you know, women's careers and career sustainability in IT. Um, And I don't know whether you know, but our enrolments in IT degrees in Australia, um, in terms of gender, are actually getting more masculinised. So more men enrolling as a proportion of enrolments than in the past. You would have thought that that was changing, but sadly it's not. Um, so I'm um, thinking about the workforce that's doing that programming uh, is developing up some of those technological tools, which could potentially could potentially help us design the bias out. It's it's all done within an ecosystem that is very male dominated to start with. So, um, and has assumptions around the types of people and the types of, even the types of things that we're measuring um, can actually build biases in all sorts of biases, including gender bias um, into them. So I think it, they, these technologies um, could potentially have a uh, profound effect, but I don't think again we can necessarily assume that that's going to be designing the biases out and in fact, I think it could replicate or even amplify them.
1: Yeah, yeah and, and, and it's interesting because I was I was reading some stuff around you know how a lot of things designed by men, Work only for men and not necessarily for women, and I think the same applies. Like I said, to other disadvantaged groups, like we talk about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal health, where it's designed from a non-Aboriginal le- lens and it doesn't work. So, what what would you say is our opportunities to address some of that? Then, I mean, you've talked about you know that there's not that many enrolments in. IT degrees, which is a bit sad, to be honest. Well, there's lots of enrolments, but it's not gender equitable. Not gender equitable, yeah. 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 So what do you think we could do to address some of that?
0: That's a good question. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, um, you know, trying to – well, first up, It's trying to recognise that actually we do, that it's innate that we have biases in the technologies that are designed by humans. Humans are biased, humans come with particular assumptions and um, approaches which are biased in all sorts of ways, including in terms of gender. So I think recognising that that's a a problem, that human created machines uh, replicate human created biases. Um, And then, I don't know, I guess sort of thinking through the ways in which we might be able to design that out i'm not 100 sure on how you do that um but i think you know improving the representation of women and other sort of marginalized communities in um in the technological space would be a good start um having a broader range of stakeholders considered as a part of the developments that that we're undertaking um not assuming that the assumptions of of the person who's the designer um, applies to all of us, Um, you know, and if that's a a young white man, um, that's not going to fit necessarily with um, a whole bunch of other people in the community who will be using the technologies.
1: Yeah, and and I guess I I think what you've hit on there around the um, The consultation and like making it a collaborative effort, which can take time, but the reward is there in the end. Because I think when we talk about women's employment, it isn't just that particular workforce. It's a whole of society or a, you know, a social issue, if you will. So. Is there a way, I guess now I'm speaking from a New South Wales health point of view, when we are designing, for example, our own in-house programs or um, for, for women or technology in general, is, is there a way to better consult and who would those people be around, you know, how you do better human-centered design, incorporating not just women? Because um, mm. we, we, we try to consult in health, as yeah. you can imagine um, the university does too, but could we do it better?
0: Always. Yeah. And I think that's really, um, it's really about trying to think through who your stakeholders are. And I think organisations like uh, New South Wales Health, but also like universities um, need to think very broadly about that. So we, as I see both institutions actually have something in common in that we both establish to serve the community. Um, Our community is uh, very broad. Um, and that might be, for me, it's through education and research and about interpreting results for um, community members and hopefully making the place a bit better than we, we found it. And for you, I guess it's you know similar but different um, pathways to do that. So I think it's about thinking through your head, who your end users are, thinking about who the users of your products are, thinking about how they're going to be deployed and then making sure that all of those voices are there as a part of the design. So um, if it means... Um, thinking about communities where access is an issue, or thinking about communities, I don't know, where where there's a range of different cultural assumptions, um, thinking about um, different careers um, that are different by gender or um, by cultural identity and background, um, and trying to design for that inclusion rather than for designing for just a a single um, type of um, stakeholder, I guess.
1: yeah, okay. no, that's that's great. And yeah, I think I like your point there about designing for inclusion. I think that's a that's a lovely phrase and I think it's a good way to put it. Um so what do you what do you think are some of the I guess technologies or ways of working or disruptions, whatever you want to call it, in the next five to ten years that could be leveraged as opportunities to, you know, increase the inclusion of women and have their voices heard in in the future of work? It's a range of things I can I can appreciate, but just wanted to get your thoughts from a, a leadership perspective.
0: Yeah. Um. Well, I think look, this I think this remote working I- I- issue is going to be front and center for for some time, uh, and I think there are uh, real um, real kernels in there of um, you know capacity to actually make a difference in that, um, n- but not necessarily in the way that you think. Um, so. If we're, if that's allowed us to think a bit differently around the ways that we model work and what hours of work are and where work is, then that might let us think a little bit more flexibly about um, how we can organise work and um, who who does it in what particular order. So uh, remote working, um, you know, and the technology enabled working from home or for, from wherever that's not at the workplace um, has uh, been often seen as something, as we've talked about, as being really critical um, to build gender equality. I, I think we've got to start to think a little bit, actually, around this about and opening that up for men um, so that men are able to be working more from home and that's not as, um, you know, sort of discouraged. You know, we know that men are less likely to ask for uh, flexible working options, including work from home, than are women, and when they do ask, um, they're much less likely to be um, given permission to do that. So if men start en masse working, doing this kind of work, then it sort of takes takes a, a little bit of the stigma and the sting out of working on a flexible basis, because it's not just sort of ghettoised, if you like, to the female labour force, um, but it might be something that is seen as something that all workers and high-performing workers um, can do. And it's not because you have. It's a, an exception kind of thing. Because you have a family, you can do it. But if it's because that's how how we work, I think there's something... Something in in that, I don't know if that makes makes sense to you, but I think that um, there's something in there, but as I've said, I think we have to really make sure that we design with equalities in mind and um, and that's a tricky tricky thing to do, especially when you're in a crisis moment like we are at the moment.
1: It's a really interesting point there about men, because it was going to segue into the the next question, which is, you know, when we talk about women in leadership, and we talk about women's employment, it's led by women, you know, most of the voices are women. Uh, What role can men play in this? And how do we How how do how does an organization make men feel empowered to be able to support something that will obviously benefit them as well, uh, but reframe the story so it's about everyone rather than Mm, making it a women's issue? Have you come across that before?
0: (laughs) I absolutely have. (laughs) Um, So most of the time, you know, what I do a lot of public facing events as a part of my research, as does all of my research team. And back in the day when we could actually, you know, have meetings in person, um, and even on Zoom, to be honest now, um, you know, probably 80% plus of my audience when I'm talking about gender equity um, are women, Um, which is great, I'm never gonna turn down, you know, some motivated, um, particularly often young women and motivated feminists from engaging with my work, I think that's important. Um, But it's interesting the way that that, that the business of equality is seen as being for women to do, that clearly hasn't worked, has it? Um, You know, we're in a situation where women are doing the majority of the unpaid work. They're the majority of people who are in the, um, you know, not great jobs without career paths and that are paid per hour. Um, They're not in the lucrative positions, um, you know, that are highly male dominated, that are right at the heart of the economy. uh, And they're not making it through into the senior leadership kind of positions. So having a situation where equality is meant to be fixed by women and seen as a women's issue It just doesn't work. On the flip side of that, there is a lot of evidence that building um, equality in organizations is not only good for women, um, for all of those reasons we talked about early on, you know, that women are very highly motivated about careers now, this next generation, um, and they are very highly educated and they have expectations that they're going to be able to combine their work and family. So, not only is that good for women to pay back on that investment, but it's also good for women, you know, building. You know their economic independence um, across their life course and into retirement and all of that, which is really critical for women. But that's also really good for organisations and for the economy and society more broadly. So it's pretty uncontroversial now that um, more gender equal organisations and more inclusive organisations are organisations that perform better on a range of measures. And if you look at that in terms of financial measures, if you look at it in terms of um, innovation measures, if you look at it on good governance measures, it's uncontroversial that the more diverse your leadership teams are, the more inclusive and more uh, equitable your organisation is kind of the better you perform across pretty much any measure that you want to choose. Um, So that there's a real business case argument there, both for women, um, and for organisations. I kind of worry a little bit about only relying on a business case that's there. And it's uncontroversial. But I think we also need to be just really clear that in situations where, I don't know, it might be profitable to have a gender unequal kind of situation, that that's actually not okay, that we need to also have a bit of a social justice and an inclusion kind of element to what we're arguing for as well. But I think going back to your question about whether men um, should speak for equality and, and how we can get them to do that. Look, I think, I think it's trying to tread that line between the, like, it's the right thing to do. Um, and it's just sort of makes makes sense that you know your sisters, or your you know friends, who are women, your children who are girls or women, should have the same access to opportunity as you know boys and, and men should have. Um, but it also makes sense that your organisation should be a high performing one, and if you want to lead lead that, then you know um, that's good for you. I mean, there's also. There's also lots of evidence that um, if we're just going down to the micro level of families around um, gender equality, we also know that where um, there is more equality in homes. So, for example, where um, men do a high proportion of the care in, a, in the home, and there's more of an equal mix in terms of who does paid employment and, and not, is that um, they are families where um boys are more likely to say that they want to be more involved in their kids lives when they grow up Um, girls show that they have a bit um the higher kind of aspiration to education and uh, career attainment um, but it's also, I don't really want to say this out loud, but it's where we have more romantic relationships in marriages as well. So that's a, you know, that's a real business case for men. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of evidence that uh, that these things are sort of good for, good for women, good for families, good for um, organisations, but it's also good for society to have, uh, you know, b- better, you know, making use of our talents and better including um, all of our people and not just sort of choosing for one group. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely look and I think you you raised it cuz you raised it before previously as well when you talked about well men want flexibility to be at home with their kids too. So um what's the loss in being able to empower women to to be able to so that everyone at some point then has access to all the all the things that a workplace can offer. Um Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah.
0: interestingly, our research shows us that once um when men have little children actually there's a real convergence in attitudes so once the what, um so there's sort of women young women seem to plan their careers that's around care and what they think they're going to do in their care even before they have children But when they're sort of starting to think think about that. And they're quite different from men in terms of what they think is going to happen or what their plans are about how they'd manage that. But once young men have babies, and the baby's no longer academic, but the baby's actually a real human being in their family, in their arms, they, women and men really converge in terms of what their priorities are and about how how they'd like to be involved. So I think there's, there's something there that's really changing a little bit in terms of um, young men's, not just young women's attitudes, but young men's attitudes. And I think there's a moment in time where we can try to capitalise on that and, um, you know, meet their needs as well, because I don't think we're going to get to a situation of, you know, uh, equality across in, in, any sphere unless we're enabling men to, um, you know, this is going to sound dreadful, but to, to be more like women at home, you know, to actually engage more and have, have those really strong relationships uh, with kids and with older people. And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty great part of life as well, right?
1: Mm. So. Absolutely. And do you think COVID has probably changed that attitude to some extent? And, you know, I'm no psychologist, but I imagine something like lockdown and being away from family has made a lot of people appreciate what they had previously. Do you think that has been part of the change that COVID has triggered because of the ability to work from home, the, a different attitude in men that they can have this? I think maybe, I think
0: maybe. But if we actually um, have a look at the time use data and what's what's happened, yeah. um, <laughs> the, 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 data, <laughs> the data doesn't really play that out so well. Women stepped into COVID doing double what men did in terms of unpaid labour at home. The men have done more during the COVID lockdown period, so they sort of stepped up a bit. The problem is that women have really stepped up, and so the gap between men and women wow. has actually got larger. Wow. So that's, so that's not great. Um, but I th- look, I imagine there's work going on at the moment. I think it's uh, I we haven't done work on this as yet, but um, there's a lot there's a lot of big international studies going on about the ways in which this is changing attitudes towards um, you know not just work but family and you know career and you know you, th- you hear lots of um, evidence that people it's a time that people are thinking about you know what they're doing in life, not just in work, but whether they're in the right kind of job, whether they're in the right home, whether they're in the right sort of relationships. So. There's a time when we're going to see a lot of change, I think. But no, the data in Australia about time use does not bode well for gender equality in unpaid work because it's actually gotten worse.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's that's not comforting. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we, we we're getting close to time, but I would like to ask you one final question, if I may, which is, I guess, a sort of a wrap up. So, future of work, what role? do women play and how do or how can organizations support that to ensure that women are included in that work in terms of the future of work um and what are the key changes that will impact women do you think in that space so look yeah,
0: yeah young women like women are the future of work is, is my take on that so women are um you know 50 percent plus a little bit more of the population um they are more than half of our uh, enrolled um ed- educated group you know going through universities going through vocational education and training um, they are ex- they have different views about what they want uh, from their work and their life than their mothers did uh, and they have different views um, from men in many ways about what they want so I would say that the the real insight about what the future of work should look like is we actually need to start to listen to women, um, particularly young women who are our future. So we our, our work has been looking at 16 to 40 year olds, um, women and men, to try to understand what they want from work and, and how they see that unfolding. Um, and, you know, some of those insights are pretty interesting about the types of things that they say that they want. Um, and interestingly, the top uh, two things that women say that they want. Number one is they want employment security. So we often talk about, you know, women just want flexibility and, you know, all this. they do. That's in their top five. But the key thing that they want um, is employment security. So they want a good job. They want wages they can count on. Um, they want a career and they want that to stretch over time. The other most important thing um, that women say that they want is they want to be treated with respect um and you know that's a very gendered kind of term especially at the moment um and when we've done focus groups to talk to young women about what do they mean by that so it's something like 81% said it mattered a lot to them in their future career um to to have that framed up around respect and they see this in terms of being valued as a person in an organization um uh, if i can just quote from a couple of the focus groups they talk about not being spoken over not being spoken down to not being mansplained when they're at work um to use a colloquial term but to be valued as um, professionals in the way that their male colleagues are Um, so those two things put together is pretty interesting i think particularly in the national conversations we're having at the moment about gender equality and respect and the fact that it doesn't exist in lots of um, careers and lots of workplaces so i think Listening to some of those concerns, um, the other things that they want is flexibility. They want good pay and they want interesting work, right? So they want the capacity to develop over their careers. Um, They wanna make a difference. So I think starting from the basis of, okay, what is the, these people who are our future of work and are our future workforce, what do they want? What do they need to succeed? Um, Let's listen to them and design for that rather than let's listen to, you know, what we assume they want. Um, and that they you know don't want to carry on careers after they've had babies for example uh, let's let's ass- let's listen to them and let's design design for them um, and and I think that creates sort of a slightly different that'll create a whole bunch of different behaviors in organizations if we genuinely do that so I'd say that's that's the absolute key thing and I think that holds across the entire um, life cycle, you know, like I'm talking about young women there and that research was looking at women. But listening to your your women in your workforce, thinking through what the trends are in terms of what the, the younger people coming through are and understanding what they're needing from work, which is likely to be very different from the generation before. And I think you can't really go wrong
1: Yeah, if you that, do that. That's, that's a, that's, and that's a really important point there. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Listen um, and don't assume. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was really good. Well, I think we're we're probably close to time now. So, um I just really want to thank you so much. That was fascinating. It was absolutely amazing and thank you so much for your time. It's been really really interesting um to get your perspective. Um I, I say that personally as a woman but also professionally as um uh, someone who works for New South Wales Health. It's very uh, very interesting to have your thoughts around where the f- women fit into the future of work.
0: Pleasure Thanks for having me. And so great to talk to New South Wales Health because you've done so much for everybody in the last (laughs) 18 months. So it was lovely to
1: chat to you. Thank you. So that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for joining me on the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to like, share and subscribe on whatever platform you're on right now.